Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How's it going? Uh, If you're visiting, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been here like three weeks now, and already someone has stolen my stool. Um, I don't really use it much anyway, but uh, it's fine. You know, I'll get over it. I'm not resentful at all. Uh, So great to see you guys. Nine o'clock service looking packed. That means one thing. There's no Broncos game today. Uh, It was on Thursday, and that means that I have already converted every single one of you into Lions fans, and you're desperate to get home and watch the Lions Saints at 11 o'clock, right? No? No one? Okay, fine. Uh, We're in the middle of a series uh, that we called, Did You See That? This is the basic premise that we're working around. Jesus does some things uh, every now and again. And on the surface, you might say, well, there's an obvious thing that's going on there. And then you look a little deeper, you kind of get into the weeds, and you find that actually, no, he's got this whole other message going on. When I thought about analogies that might help you understand this or help us understand this, I thought about my life growing up in the 90s, and uh, some of you will have had these thrown at you regularly. Anyone know what it is? It's a magic eye. Now, I was convinced for the longest time that this was like a conspiracy theory to make me look a bit foolish. They tell you you're supposed to hold it really close and slowly move it away. And in all my years of doing magic eyes, I have never seen the picture once. I just cannot do it. So my fundamental belief is that's not a problem with me. That's you guys. You're just making this stuff up. There's not even, there's nothing there to look at. Uh, but, but. The idea is you look in a particular way and you see something that's, that makes the image richer. This is kind of the idea that we're playing out with this series as we, we go into the first chapters of John, this biography of Jesus, and we start to pull out some of the things that are happening. So we're going to get into uh, another passage in a minute, but first I'm going to give you a couple of questions. And there's going to be three questions during the series. The first one is a little bit of a warm-up question. It's this Have you ever been denied access to something? Have you ever had that embarrassing experience of trying to get in to some kind of venue, some kind of event, and they're like, no, this isn't for you. Maybe it was the way that you were dressed. Uh, Maybe it was something particular about you, and and man, there could be a heartbreaking story there. Maybe you turned up to a wedding that you thought you were invited to, uh, and you weren't actually invited, which happens more often than you would think. I uh, have a friend, I'm going to call him Jeff, because that's not his name. Uh, And I worked with him for a while. He was a big guy, and he used to work on the door. Back in the the time when club scenes in in Birmingham in England were very big, he was one of these doormen. Uh, And he tells this wonderful story about the first time he was employed. Now, Now, Jeff would be maybe the first to say he's not the sharpest knife in the toolbox or whatever you say there, but, but he's a lovely guy. And he tells this story about the first night he was asked to work at this new club that had just opened, and his boss comes down to him after a while and says, Jeff, we're full. No one else comes in tonight. And Jeff looks at him and says, all right, boss, no worries. I've got this. Now, he sounds a little like Ozzy Osbourne, and and that's not Ozzy being on drugs. That's just what people from our area sound like. Uh, This is like a lot of development to get this accent to this point. Uh, And so Jeff says to his boss, no worries, I've got this covered. Nobody else will get in. And so his boss goes back upstairs, and then around five minutes later, a huge Rolls Royce pulls up. 
and out gets a musician. His name is Steve Winwood. He may be, become, be famous over here, I don't know, but in England at the time, he was huge, and Steve Winwood walks confidently towards the door. He's about to just, you know, make his entrance, and Jeff steps in front of him and says, sorry, mate, we're full. No one else comes in tonight. And so Steve Winwood looks at him and says the words that usually get him in anywhere he wants to go. He says, I'm Steve Winwood. And Jeff looks at him and says, I don't care who you are, mate. You're not coming in here tonight. We're full. And so Steve Winwood gets back in his Rolls Royce and leaves. A few minutes later, the manager comes down to Jeff, puts an arm on his shoulder and says, Jeff, Steve Winwood turned up yet? And Jeff looks and says, yeah, I told him to get lost. And the manager obviously did not react particularly well. Turns out Steve Winwood was turning up at this brand new club as a personal favor so the manager could tell everyone, hey, Steve Winwood was there tonight and now he wasn't there tonight. Even people like that, right, they, they have these moments where, oh, I didn't quite make it. I didn't get access. I was shut out. I, I, I was left on the outside. Second question, how and where do you experience access to God? And have you ever had that experience of feeling shut out there as well? We'll get into that a little bit more later. How do you experience God? And, and because there might be some people that you would say, I'm not churched, I, I don't even know about this following Jesus thing, uh, I'll expand that. For you right now, how do you experience things like what you might call the spirit, the life force? How do you find centering? How do you find this, this moment of meditation? What is it that you do that enables you to do that? Yes, there's a chunk of us that would say we're following Jesus and we have this definite idea of what that looks like, but for some of us, maybe we're not there uh, yet. Maybe for some of you, it's some of these images. Maybe it's mountains, landscape, nature. Maybe some of you are like, if it wasn't for like this real existential guilt, I'd be in the mountains right now. Something dragged me here to listen to you when this is where I'd rather be. Maybe it's like that place of like, ah, oh, there's something here that makes me feel like I'm accessing the spirit. Maybe it is solitude. Maybe it's a cup of coffee. Maybe you're like, that's the thing that like switches me up in the morning, like, uh, there is no presence of God until the first cup of coffee goes down my throat. Uh, and then maybe for some of you, it's, it's a particular activity. For me, it's walking. Like when I can walk and step by step, it feels like God is walking with me and I can process what I'm processing. I can take a question for contemplation and I can slowly, this was a picture I took by a lakeside on a retreat earlier in the year. And I got this experience of just like, oh, Jesus, it feels like you're walking step by step with me. All of the things that didn't make sense when I left, it just suddenly it feels like slowly we've pressed them into order. Maybe it's music, maybe sitting down at a piano and the experience of like, ah, there's an order here and there's creativity here. Whatever it is, hopefully every single one of us can say that there's some kind of experience that leads us into that process. It doesn't have to be in church, but it can be. But here's the thing, for a good Jewish person in the first century, if you'd have asked them about the presence of God, 99% of them would have given you exactly the same answer. The presence of God is found in the temple. It's in this particular place. It's not an activity. It's not somewhere in some experience. It's simply in this place where you can go. And it might be hundreds of miles away, but you go there and that, that is where God is present. 
And he's not really present in the same way anywhere else. So hold all of that in your minds. This is the experience of people in the first century that we're talking about. And, and because I've heard from some of you, and I already love you as a group of people, you guys like to know where passages are in the Bible. And I do not put them on the screen. I'm aware of that. There are some really bad reasons for that, and I'm not going to share them with you. But because I love you already, what I did for you is this. So pull out your little camera phones and take your picture and you can go and find all the scripture passages that you want later in the day. And, and we're going to go through a lot today. We're going to motor uh, and we're going to yeah, strap yourselves in. We're, we're going to get there, hopefully. So we're going to start with the second part of John chapter two. We were in the first part of John last week. We did the turning water into wine in the first service with you guys uh, my favorite service, it turned into like a nice claret in the little experiment. In the, the second service, it was more like a rosé. Uh, didn't work so well in the second service. Um, and they uh, were embarrassed for me, just like my kids were. So Jesus turns water into wine, goes on a little trip uh, back to his homeland. And then it says he's back in Jerusalem. So if you're opening your own text, it's John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was actually down to Jerusalem, but the language of going up to Jerusalem was the correct language. You always went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers, overturned their tables, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? For the temple he spoke of was his body, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray, and then let's just jump into what's happening here. Uh, God, thank you for your presence here with us. That however we feel about our ability to access that, we're going to learn that you say that we are welcome. God, we take this word and we believe as your followers that you breathed on it. God, would you breathe on us? Make us come alive in new ways. In ways that we feel empty. In ways that we feel alone. In ways that we don't feel enough. Breathe on us. May we come alive. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us. Amen. Okay. So here we go. First passage, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. Jesus went to a temple, and he finds a tent market. 
This is Cebu City Public Market, uh, Carbon Market. I went there when I was 19 years old, my first overseas mission experience, and after many hours of travel, travel, they dumped me into this marketplace and said, just go and explore. And just the intensity of the heat and the noise and everything being yelled at me and all of these kids coming up and asking me for money. I had no experience of any of this kind of stuff. So when you see kids on the street asking you for money, what was the first thing I did? I pulled out my wallet and started handing money out and everyone with me on the trip just like <gasps> inhaled and said, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Everything about the experience though seemed the opposite of what you might call worship at least to me. Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he's looking for a temple and he finds a tent market. He's looking for something orderly and he finds something chaotic. He's looking for something spiritual and he finds something secular. He's looking for something sacred and he finds something secular. And this is where we land in the middle of this passage. It's not what you sort of think about when you think about something like orderly worship. It's this mess of noise and chaos that Jesus encounters. And so what's his reaction there? Well, his reaction seems, doesn't it, like the most un-Jesus-like reaction that you might find. At least if you go by what you're told Jesus looks like when you're a kid, because we learn those things like Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild was one of the rhymes that we got to learn. And then this is the Jesus we're presented with. Jesus is exa acting exactly like we would tell our kids not to act in church. This kind of behavior just doesn't fly right. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So when you read this, what you might see is this. Jesus wants to create a better divide between spiritual and sacred. Sorry, between spiritual and secular. He wants to create this world where like, the two are kept far apart from each other. And this place where you're going to church in the first century equivalent, he wants it to be controlled and he wants it to be ordered and all those different things. But I wonder if that's really what's happening. This story is really interesting in some ways because it's one of the only things that we see Jesus do that is in every one of the four biographies of his life. Death and resurrection are in all four of them. Uh, the feeding of 5,000 people from a few loaves and fishes is in all four of them. And this one is in all four of them. Interestingly, there's a couple of differences, right? So in the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is right at the end of Jesus' life. You could say that this is the thing that causes his death. This is the moment where the Jews say, like, we're done with this guy. He is too much trouble. But in John, it's right at the beginning. So, okay, probably got some theologians here and stuff like that based on where we are by a seminary, and, and some of you guys have been around, you've studied for a long time. One argument could be that Jesus did this twice, he went and he cleared people out the temple twice. Now, personally, my, my, my feeling is this. This isn't the sort of thing that you get away with doing twice. This is a big deal. He goes and he causes absolute chaos in one of the most sacred places in the world. The center of Judaism on earth. Jesus goes in and he just goes crazy. To me, that doesn't feel like something you get away 
with doing twice. I would expect at least one of the writers would say something like, oh, by the way, this was the second time he did it, and it was just as embarrassing as the first time he did it. I would expect some honest reflection of, we hid under tables the first time, we hid under tables the second time, and we're never going back to the temple with this guy ever again, because it's got this feeling of like, no. You get away with doing this thing once. So that, that's my personal reading. If you think he happened to do it twice, then that's fine. I would suggest it probably happened once. And, and in good first century fashion, John, this writer, is not actually super interested in chronology. That isn't the most important thing to him. He doesn't need everything to be this happened, then this happened, this happened. He's using this to storytell. He's taken this thing that Jesus did in history and he's putting it right at the start and saying, this explains everything that Jesus did. This covers a ton of what he was doing here on earth. If you, if you want to get an idea of what Jesus was all about, take this story right at the beginning. And this is what I would suggest is happening here. But when you read the other passages, actually you do get like a little bit more information because this is what Mark, another writer, says Jesus does. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. We'll get to that in a second. Jesus is essentially in the business of protest. Now, you could feel all sorts of things politically about what happened in uh, Washington, in Seattle over the last few months, but it gives us this good reference point for what Jesus is doing because we don't have to agree with the politics to see what this is. This is this form of protest, and some of you may be totally on board and some of you may not, and that's fine, but Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, was a group of people that gathered together and said, as a form of protest, we're going to take over this area and we're going to run it in a different way. Jesus is doing that. Now, one of the things that was incredible to see with this whole thing is there was some stuff that happened that was wonderful. There was some stuff that happened that wasn't. Uh, one of the things I did get some amusement from was the garden that was started in Chas, because that, to me, just felt like it wasn't going to feed anybody. Um, and, and so there was this moment of, like, that is what happens when you move out of your parents' house and you have to pay rent for the first time. <laughs> That's like feeding ourselves. is definitely not as easy as we thought. But this protest... That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying there's something wrong with the way that the world is operating here, and we need to do something about it. Now, it's hard for us, maybe, to take Jesus as doing anything politically. We think of him as having this bigger goal, but actually the goal, right, is the same. Jesus said there's something wrong with this system. Think about that phrase that Mark uses. He talks about this idea that this house is a house of prayer for all nations. Early on, what I would suggest is this. Jesus isn't talking primarily about splitting sacred and secular. He's actually talking about access. He's talking about who gets to be involved. He's talking about who gets to experience presence. What was the system in place? So we're going to track back, and you've got all those passages if you want to look at them. We're going to jump back into this book, Exodus, which is like groundwork for everything that happens in the Jewish faith. This is where this thing gets formed. There's these prehistory stories in Genesis. There's the, the patriarchs and all these important things going on. But Exodus is where we get like down to the details of how a relationship with God works with a community on earth. And so this is what we read. This is the system that Jesus is protesting. 
The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. When the priests who approach the Lord, even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. If you're unfamiliar with the church thing, when you see Lord, uh, you can read God. This was this personal name that Jewish people had for God. In Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. In our English Bible, we'll write Lord. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then we get some details. This was chapter 19. We're going to skip down to 26. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. And then one final one. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. Therefore, there I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. Okay, I destroyed my office earlier to give you a visual illustration of this. Um, so I might get a protest. And, and this, I've, I've learned the optimum angle for standing this up is like 35 degrees. Uh, so, hopefully, we can uh, get this to stand in some kind of good orderly fashion. Otherwise, my friends on the front row um, will be squashed. <laughs> we're seeing some lean. We'll, we'll trust it. So, so, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about something we're very familiar with. We're talking about doorways. We're talking about entrances. We're talking about access. In this language that God gives to these people, he says, I am coming to dwell amongst you, but I am different than you. And so there's this, there's this barrier that is controlled. The access is controlled. There is access, there is experience, there is God's presence, but there's this way of controlling that access to do it in the right way. And he talks about how a priest will come and he will do this thing where he will go in once a year and give a very specific offering. And he's the only person that can come and experience God. But, but really, anyone can come. Anyone can stay on the peripheral. It's just got to be controlled because God is different and God is holy. And to experience his presence exactly as he is, this God who has been there beyond time immemorial, a human being can't handle that. So it's controlled. But what happens to this system when human beings get involved? It might start perfectly fine, but over time, something happens. What had the system become? The system had become about limiting access. Suddenly, there were all these different steps. There was not just this one barrier between God and humanity, not just this one sacrifice that was offered, but suddenly there was a place where the Gentiles could go, and suddenly there was a place where the Hebrew women could go, and suddenly there was a place where the Hebrew men could go, and then there was the court of the Levites, and it was dot, dot, dot. There were all these different steps and constant barriers, and this system was put in place that controlled access. Not, not to make it safe, not to make it possible for human beings like you and I to experience God, but suddenly to stop human beings experiencing God. Think about this as, as what we talked about earlier. Every one of us has experienced this, and we, and we talked about this like right at the beginning. You've experienced that moment where you hit a stop sign. And in this system, 
that the Jewish rulers had set up. Everyone hit this eventually. You might get so far, but you were never going to really experience God in the way that he was intended to be experienced. Instead of a system enabling you to experience God, we had this system that stopped you experiencing God. Controlled by a sacred place, by a sacred man, with a sacred text, with a sacred ritual. And what Jesus encountered was this. He walked into a temple where everything was about selling and profit and making more money. The money changers were there to rob you as they exchanged your foreign coins for their coins. The people selling doves were there to profit from from what you would give them. There was a whole money lending system that was going on that enabled poor people to stay in poverty. They would lend at incredible rates of interest. And everything about the system had become warped. And what Jesus sees now is not something that enables people to access God safely. What he sees now is something Something that stops people accessing God. This thing that was designed to make it possible for people just like you and I to know this God suddenly stops people knowing this God. And isn't this what he sees in this group Pharisees that we see come up time and time again? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Jesus sees a mass of humanity broken, hurting, lonely, damaged, that are coming to experience the divine in this place. And then he sees a system that's designed to make that as difficult as possible, that's designed to hit them with those many stop signs and to charge them as much money to get through the system as they possibly can. This is what Jesus is protesting. The system had become not about access, It had become about control. Aren't we still talking about access in today's world? Even outside of the religious level of things, aren't we still talking about who gets to access what? Isn't that so much of the tension in the world today? This is uh, Chance the Rapper. This was a song that he he released really briefly. I don't know if you'll be able to read it there. I made the font a little bit too small, but it never really went anywhere. He just did it on Stephen Colbert's show one evening, but just something about the lyrics just captured me. I hear the seam snapping, and I'm the team captain. No more knees slapping or shoe shining or shoe signing till the dream happens. I'm just going to keep rapping, and you all just keep clapping and keep acting like Flint got clean water, and you all don't got teen daughters and black friends and gay cousins. You're just going to say nothing. Know that the day's coming, knees bowed, tongues confessing. Last ones getting first dibs on blessings. And then it hits this refrain after this where it says, the day's on its way, and it can't wait no more. Here it comes. The day's on its way, it can't wait no more. Here it comes. Jesus is beginning to do this thing where he's going to talk about tearing apart the system and replacing it with something different. And it's like this table-flipping moment. It's this moment where he says, I just can't wait anymore. The, the crucifixion, the resurrection, they're a little way down the line, but, but I'm going to flip some tables because this system is broken and it needs changing. And you see that protest in that song, don't you? That, like, would, would the situation in Flint, Michigan be the same if that was New York City? It wouldn't, would it? 
And that's this tension that you see in the world. Who has access to service? Who has access to the potential to, for prosperity? All these different things. And Jesus is seeing something similar in the world he's facing. People cannot access God in the way that they're supposed to. And Jesus says, the day is coming. It's on its way. I'm just going to flip some tables. And we're going to get this thing started a little earlier. This is the incredible magic of what Jesus done. Jesus taught a radical level of access that began with a revelation of how God saw humanity. That he sees us as broken, yes. He sees us as hurting, yes. But he sees us as made to be very good. He sees us with this core that is his image. And continued with what God would do for humanity. Because that's the next thing. That's the next passage. This is the third question. What happens when you attack a millennia-old religious system that was believed to have been divinely mandated? Okay, it's a little more complex than the questions before. What happens when, at least to the Jewish people, you stand up and say, I'm about to tear this thing down. It's never going to be the same again. In almost every circumstance, you end up dead. You end up with a huge problem on your hands because people don't like that. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. I, I hope that I have some Greek language nerds out there with me. Uh, I'm very nerdy about this kind of thing. I'm always intrigued just as why people pick different words. Up until now, everyone who's mentioned the word temple in this passage has used this word uh, hereon. It's the temple in terms of like everything. The temple grounds, the outer courts, all those different things. And, and so that's what we've been building towards. There's this, there's this place that's wide and it has all these things going on it. And then Jesus, very intentionally, I think, will suddenly flip the word. He'll suddenly use something else. He'll suddenly use this word, neos, which means the very place that God resides. Suddenly he's not talking about the wider court. Suddenly he's not talking about the marketplace on the outside of it, the court of the Gentiles, all these different terms that you may or may not be familiar with. Suddenly he's talking about the very heart of the temple. That place we read back in Exodus where it says, build me a sanctuary, the most holy place. Put these things here and send this priest in once a year. Suddenly he's saying, that thing, that's me. When you talk about killing me, when you talk about my death, you're talking about knocking down that very central thing. And when you knock it down, I'll build it again in three days. And when I do that, the world will never be the same again. I don't know if any of you are golfers, golf fans out there. I know there's a couple of us. The most sacred place on earth in terms of golf, unless you go to the country where golf was invented. Um, but at least in America, the most sacred place is Augusta National, where they play the Masters. And this place is pristine, and this is beautiful. And this is the heart of Augusta, the Hogan Bridge. Uh, this is just this stunning piece of golf architecture. It's like a temple to people that love golf. What Jesus is saying to these people is he's saying, I'm tearing down your whole system. Nothing will be the same again. It is like going to a golfer and saying, I'm putting condos on the 11th fairway. 
I'm tearing this thing down and I'm just building like something completely different. Jesus is threatening everything that they know about the way that the temple works. And of course, the reaction there is not going to be great. Jesus is reinventing access. He's about to do something for you and I that we could never do for ourselves. And for a little while, we're going to just land, and we've not got a ton of time because I overrun uh, regularly. We're going to land in this story and just look at what this means for you and I. And this, to me, is just delightful. So this is Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, now remember, post-death, post-resurrection, everything Jesus said by flipping tables, he is now done in real life. Go south to the road, the desert road that goes to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way to meet an Ethiopian eunuch. I spent like 50 minutes trying to think through how I could carefully describe what a eunuch is to people that don't know, and I'm just going to leave it here. If you don't know, use Google. Work the internet machine and figure it out, because I, I couldn't figure out a description. An important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which was the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, but on his way home was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And we'll go back for one second. This man had gone to Jerusalem. All it says to us is that he'd gone to worship. But I'm intrigued as to what happened to him when he got there. See, hidden away in the Old Testament, what it says is this. No eunuch can enter the assembly of God. You are not welcome here. That stop sign, he got hit at barrier one. There is no access for you here. You are not welcome. So I'm intrigued. Did he go? And when he got to worship, what did they say to him? How is he feeling when he comes back? Because if he's gone and been turned away, man, that is a long drive back to Ethiopia. Gone with this passion to worship this God that he has heard about. He's what Jewish people would call a God-fearer. He's gone to worship and been told, no, you're not welcome. And then he meets this guy, Philip, who sits alongside him. And as he's reading this passage from Isaiah, asks if he can get up and explain it to him. And this is the passage he was read. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, please tell, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Starts to unpack for him this idea that Jesus created access for everybody, that he did this not just on a worldwide level. Last week we talked about the idea that the kingdom is coming, the world will never be the same again. But this week we're talking about the very personal fact that Jesus chose to make access possible for each one of us in this very individual way. And my hope and my dream for this Ethiopian eunuch is that as Jesus starts to read Isaiah, he starts to continue to read. Because I'd just love to share with you what it says in Isaiah 56. And it wasn't in your list of scriptures, Connie, I'm afraid. You'll have to remember that one. Um, let's see if I can find it really quick. This is what Isaiah goes on to say after unpacking what Jesus has done for every single one of us. 
Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his temple. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Jesus stands in the temple courts and says, this was made to be for all people all the time from anywhere with any background of any brokenness. And this is what he's unpacking for us. This isn't about splitting sacred and secular. This is about access. This is about the fact that we're done with stop signs. Jesus creates access for all people, all times, anywhere, any place, any space. I'm going to invite Aaron and the team to come up. We're going to walk from this into the table, the Eucharist, the Mass, whatever you have grown up calling it, this thing where we gather and we believe that Jesus, in a very particular way, brings his presence amongst us. We believe that with all of our brokenness, with all, with all of the ways that this week, this year, we believe that the world has chewed us up and spat us out. With all the ways that we see a system that is broken and needs fixing, with all of the baggage that we bring, with all of our emotions that say, I don't know if I'm welcome here. We believe that this Jesus has created a way where there is no way. We believe that a system that was about control is one that now says there is access. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And we have communion elements all over the place. So there's one for each section. And I think some potentially at the back as well, if you're on the back row. And we're going to create space to keep it socially distanced. But what you can do is as you see space, you can come and you can take the elements and take them back to your chair. And we're going to take them together. But first, let me pray for what we're about to do. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship app. Thanks for listening today, South Family, and have a great rest of your day.